0: We're in the book of Jeremiah. We're not very far into it. Uh, We're in chapter two. If you want to open your Bible to chapter two or navigate over on your device. Our text is Jeremiah chapter two, verses 20 through 31. The topic, God describes the people of Judah as oxen who have foolishly broken their yoke in order to be free to pursue their own rebellious lusts. Title of our message, Folly, Folly, Oxen-Free. Particularly proud of that one, but that's just me. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we pause for prayer because we want to acknowledge that we should humble ourselves before your word and um, be submissive, Lord, to the fact that you're going to be speaking to us and revealing your love to us, showing us more of your grace, reminding us of your mercy. Lord, far more than asking us to do anything, Lord, you're asking us to just be something, and that is in love with you, and everything will flow from that. That's really the first and greatest commandment, Lord, to love you with all of our hearts, mind, soul, and strength, and I pray that, The things that we comment on today would have the uh, effect, Lord, of us growing in our love in its depth and strength and the wonder of it. And so take us through this text, Lord. Teach us the things that are most needful. Do more than we would ask or even think to ask. We thank you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. No one ever told me about the Stanford tree. The tree is the very unofficial mascot of Stanford University. Stanford's team name is the Cardinal, referring to the vivid red color, not the bird, which was another revelation to me. I don't know how I can live here in the valley all these years and not know that. Just another area of ignorance for me. The university has never been able to come up with an official mascot. Now, they they were the Indians years ago, but that's not politically correct, and so they're just the Stanford Cardinal. Uh, My understanding, one source says they came up with the uh, idea of being the Cardinal Red uh, because of the famous headline when they beat Cal that read, Cardinal Beats Blue, and that stuck. Now, a while back, Time Magazine published a list of the worst college team names. Here are five of them. The New York University Violets. The Evergreen State College Geoducks. I thought that was something crazy, but on Top Chef the other night, somebody cooked a geoduck. I don't want to know what that is. The St. Louis College of Pharmacy Eutectics. While their opponents are saying that, they beat them. The Grays Harbor College Chokers. I don't know what that refers to, but it can't be good. And our favorite, of course, the UC Santa Cruz Banana Slugs. It's creepy. In our text this morning, God has some names for his people. They're not very flattering, but they are extremely descriptive of their true spiritual condition. To give you a preview, in verse 24, God names his people the wild donkeys in heat. God gets very graphic attempting to show his people their sin in order that they might repent of it while there was still time to avert the Babylonian invasion. It makes you wonder what name God might call us instead of Calvary Chapel of Hanford or any of us individually while we're calling ourselves Christians or something, what what does God say? Hopefully it is something fantastic. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, you don't want to be labeled by your lusts. Number two, you don't want to be lamenting God's love. First of all, let's take a look at being labeled by our lusts in verses 20 through 28. The spiritual condition of the southern kingdom of Judah was one of bold, flagrant idol worship. King Ahaz, preceding his son Hezekiah long before the time of Jeremiah, had established a system of sacrificing children to the god Molech in the valley of Hinnom, just outside Jerusalem. Hezekiah led reforms, but his son Manasseh continued the practice of child sacrifice, as well as other gross idolatry, which continued and grew into Jeremiah's time. The Molech idol was a large hollow brass statue with the head of a bull and the bulging belly of a man, was designed like an old-fashioned pot-bellied stove with the belly as the firebox. A child sacrifice laid on the hands would roll into the fire in the belly cavity. Scripture describes this passage, or practice rather, uh, in Leviticus 18.21 saying, it is passing through the fire to Molech. Molech had a female consort by the name of Ashtoreth. She was a fertility goddess. The relationship between Molech and Ashtoreth gave rise to disgusting, perverted sexual practices by their followers as the means of worshiping them. Baal was another Canaanite god whose worship also involved child sacrifice and sexual immorality. One author described it like this. In ritualistic Baal worship, adults would gather around the altar of Baal Infants would then be burned alive as a sacrificial offering to the deity. Amid horrific screams and the stench of charred human flesh, congregants, men and women alike, would engage in bisexual orgies. The ritual was intended to produce economic prosperity by prompting Baal to bring rain for the fertility of Mother Earth. Now these practices had become normal among God's people in Judah. Outwardly, they still worshiped God. They were going to the temple. They went through the motions. But they were simultaneously worshiping idols by engaging in child sacrifice and in the sexual deviance of those deities. They would have labeled themselves devout Jews, the children of God, the chosen people. God labeled them very differently. And Jeremiah is going to give us at least nine different labels that describe their true spiritual condition from God's vantage point. Verse 20, for of old I have broken your yoke and burst your bonds. And you said, I will not transgress when on every high hill and under every green tree you lay down playing the harlot. Now, an alternate translation for the opening few words of verse 20 is, for long ago you broke your yoke and tore up your bonds. Judah was being described as an ox yoked together with God. There's nothing wrong with that. That's a good thing. But rather than remain yoked, she broke free to go her own way. And so they were the broken yokes or the escaped oxen. And then it says in verse 20, you said I will not transgress. In other words, they said we're gonna throw off this yoke and allow ourselves a little bit more freedom here in the promised land. We're gonna look into some of the other, you know, uh, Canaanite religions, but we're not going to sin. But in fact, they did, and he says, when on every high hill and under every green tree you lay down playing the harlot. That's a summary of the locations where they worshiped Molech or Baal. Since so much of that worship, as we said, consisted of unrestrained sexual immorality, God labeled them harlots. And so right here in the opening salvo in this part of uh, Jeremiah's very first sermon to the nation of Judah, he says, you guys are like a, a, a yoke of oxen where one of them has broken free. And, and you're also like harlots. You can understand why Jeremiah didn't exactly, nobody subscribed to his podcast He's not a popular guy. This is not what people wanted to hear. It's what they needed to hear. It's not what they wanted to hear. They would hear it for 40 years. Uh, And Jeremiah would suffer uh, greatly. But the people, they they didn't want these labels. They didn't uh, uh, identify with these labels. They said, no, we're the Jews. We're the children of God. We're the chosen people. Jeremiah's crazy. What's he talking about with all these images? Verse 21. Yet I had planted you a noble vine, a seed of highest quality. How then have you turned before me into the degenerate plant of an alien vine? The vineyard is a favorite image of God's to describe not only his people, but his tender care for them. God did all he could for the nation. But in spite of his care, she became a corrupt, wild, alien vine, incapable of producing any good fruit. And so they became the alien vines. Verse 22 For though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, yet your iniquity is marked before me, says the Lord God. God is here describing them as if they were a stain that no amount of lye or soap or scrubbing was capable of removing. And so you would call them the stains or the stained. Verse 23, how can you say I am not polluted? I have not gone after the bales. See your way in the valley, know what you have done. You are a swift dromedary breaking loose in her ways. Here they're labeled a camel that's loose, without a master, going to and fro, confused, useless, expending strength, but getting nowhere. They're the loose camels. Verse 24, a wild donkey used to the wilderness that sniffs at the wind in her desire. In her time of mating, who can turn her away? All those who seek her will not weary themselves. In her month, they will find her. Graphic and gross, God saw them as a donkey in heat mating with any partner that happened along. From this initial feeling or desire or thought that they would break free somewhat from the yoke that they believed that they were under with God, they have fallen a long ways into sin. Verse 25, withhold your foot from being unshod and your throat from thirst, but you said, There is no hope, no, for I have loved aliens and after them I will go. This is a picture, this is biblical language for an adulteress filled with lust, so filled with lust that she ran barefoot after strangers and was parched on account of her relentless pursuit of them. She wouldn't even stop to eat or drink because she was so interested in committing adultery. And so another label, the barefoot adulteresses, Verse 26, as the thief is ashamed when he is found out, so is the house of Israel ashamed. They were like thieves, but those who had been apprehended and from God's true vantage point should be ashamed. And so here they're the captured thieves. Verse 26 continues, and their kings, they and their kings rather, and their princes and their priests and their prophets, saying to a tree, you are my father, and to a stone you gave birth to me. For they have turned their back to me and not their face, but in the time of their trouble, they will say, arise and save us. Now, I look at this and, you know, probably, I'm I'm gonna guess, I'm gonna go out on a limb here and say that the people didn't really believe that a tree was their father. But what God is saying is that when you fall into idolatry and in these kinds of practices for whatever reason, that's what you're actually believing. That's what you're actually acting upon as if you were part of the created world uh, you know, in an evolutionary sense and not a unique specific individual made in the image of God. And so a lot of times they say, well, I'm not, uh, I'm not worshiping an idol, but if I'm, in, if I'm engaging in behavior that would be considered by God idolatrous, spiritual idolatry, where I've left his worship and I've substituted something else, then it's true of God So, well, you're worshiping a rock. And as we saw last week, he would say, you're dumber than a rock if you're worshiping a rock. And so we need to be careful about these things. Now here he goes on to say, that they will say, arise and save us, the Jews held on to a false hope that God would answer their cries to save them from ruin, regardless their idolatry. It undoubtedly came from things like ethnic pride. After all, they were God's chosen people. The fact that the northern kingdom of Israel had already been overrun and taken captive by the Assyrians didn't seem to worry them. You'd think that would be a big warning, wouldn't you? The kingdom split in two: ten tribes to the north with Samaria as their capital, two tribes to the south with Jerusalem as their capital. The southern kingdom of Judah watched as the Assyrian army came and absolutely destroyed the northern kingdom and drug them away with fish hooks in their mouth. And you would think they would look at that and say, wow, we had better get it together before something similar happens to us, but they didn't. And if you read some of the other sources, like Ezekiel, it seems that because they were in Jerusalem and had the temple, they felt that God would never allow that to happen, that he would defend his own honor and they would be the beneficiaries of that. How sad, I've mentioned it a few times in our studies, but there's a portion in the book of Ezekiel where God describes his glory leaving the temple just prior to the final siege by the Babylonian army. Verse 28, where are your gods that you have made for yourselves? Let them arise if they can save you in the time of your trouble, for according to the number of your cities are your gods, O Judah. Apparently the Jews had adopted the pagan practice of assigning a deity or an idol to every town. So what does any of this mean for us? Well, there are at least two applications we must make. One is what you might call public, The other is more personal. I don't want to spend too much time on what I'm going to call the public application, not because it isn't relevant or incredibly important, but because I think it causes us to avoid the more personal application. Let me quote an article I read that gets immediately to the point of this public application. As we look at this as committed Christians and say, what does this mean publicly for our society? Here's a summary Today in America, the worship of fertility has been replaced with worship of reproductive freedom or choice. Child sacrifice via burnt offering has been updated ever so slightly to become child sacrifice by way of abortion. The ritualistic promotion, practice, and celebration of both heterosexual and homosexual immorality and promiscuity have been carefully whitewashed, yet wholeheartedly embraced by the cults of radical feminism, militant gay rights, and comprehensive sex education. And the pantheistic worship of Mother Earth has been substituted in name only for radical environmentalism. Now, we would say amen. We live in an idolatrous culture whose philosophies and practices are not just the same as those of worshiping Molech and Baal, they are far worse. Now that should be obvious, that public application, but if that's all we take from this, if we sit here and we think we're Christians and the rest of the world is going to hell in a handbasket, we haven't gone far enough. There is a personal application and the question isn't how bad my culture is. As important as that is, the question is, am I an idolater? Could I be labeled by my lusts or would I be labeled by my love for the Lord? Now, the doctrine behind this question is that of sanctification. Sanctification is the daily process by which I can cooperate with God as he changes me into the image of Jesus Christ. If I read my Bible correctly, even though I am a Christian with a new nature, and I have God the Holy Spirit indwelling me, and I am the temple of the Holy Spirit, I still struggle against what the Bible calls the flesh. It's that influence that remains in my unredeemed physical body that impels me to fulfill the lusts of my physical appetites. The Apostle Paul talks about it in Romans chapter six, seven, and eight. At one point, he says, I find that even as a Christian, the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, I do. He's talking about that struggle that you and I know about, between the spirit and the flesh. I can act just like a sixth century Jew. I can be going through outward motions of worshiping Jesus while simultaneously yielding my mind and my body over to sinful practices that fulfill the lusts of my flesh. The important question then is how would God label us or how would God label me? Do any of those nine descriptions that we went through fit me? I certainly hope not. But more than hoping not, I can choose to yield my members to the Lord to serve him. I can at any moment be labeled by my love for the Lord. These sixth century Jews that we're reading about, all they had to do was what? Repent. They simply had to change their mind and return to worship the Lord. And they could have done that at any moment. There wasn't a program for it. It wouldn't have taken much time. They didn't have to go to counseling. Jeremiah, all they had to do was have a broken heart at the hearing of Jeremiah's message and they would have immediately lost all of those labels. As he's speaking to them and they would recognize, oh my gosh, I'm a wild donkey in heat. God would return them to a label of child of God, chosen person. As another would think, I'm an ox that I've thrown off my yoke. I'm starting to get interested in these things. They could return to that place of love for the Lord. There, there's nothing. It's not rocket science, as we like to say. It's a matter of changing the mind. How does this work for us today? More than hoping that these things don't. I can choose to yield my members to the Lord to serve him. I can at any moment be labeled by my love for the Lord. One of the key scriptures here, the the whole section of Romans 6, 7, and 8 is important, but just to summarize it, chapter six, verse six, knowing this, this is a fact, my old man, my old nature was crucified with Jesus that the body of sin, which is a reference to the flesh that's left over, might be done away with, that we or I should no longer be slaves of sin. Pastor David Guzik explained it like this. He said, God calls upon us in participation with him to do actively day by day with our flesh just what he has already done with our old nature. We're to crucify it, make it dead to sin. When we allow the flesh to be continually influenced by the habits of the past, the world, and the devil, the flesh exerts a powerful pull towards sin. Until my current physical body is redeemed at the resurrection or the rapture of the church, I'm gonna struggle with the flesh. It's not gonna get any weaker. It's always gonna be there. It remains with me. But my knowledge of the crucifixion of my old nature and what Jesus did at the cross cuts the power cord. It renders it inoperative unless I decide to follow it. I choose to sin or to not sin. Thus, we should no longer be slaves of sin. I need no longer yield my mind and body over to the control of the flesh. It's not a matter of how I feel at any moment. It's a matter of fact that I have been crucified with Jesus on the cross. I'm identified with him on the cross. I'm united with him on the cross. What is true of him is true of me. And that relates to sanctification in the sense that at any time I can say yes to God, no to sin, I can be labeled by my love for the Lord rather than by my lusts. Do you remember the old ad campaign whose theme song was look for the union label? It's one of those things I wish I had never heard. I mean, it was a good ad campaign, but I find myself... Singing that every now and then out of nowhere. I mean, it's not played on the radio. Nobody's heard it for years. I don't even know if it's on YouTube, but I still, I'm just, I'll be out, you know, mowing the lawn. Look for the union label. When you are buying a coat, dress, or blouse, it means that somewhere someone's sewing. It's it's crazy. Very successful in getting in my mind. Thank you. Thank you. We should long for the union with Jesus label. I guess that's what I'm getting at. In him, we're identified with him. We have victory over the flesh and we can walk in love. I I guess in summary of that section, I would say, we think that, sometimes we can think that because we're Christians, that We can do this other stuff, throw off a yoke, and it won't be that, but we won't really sin. And, and if we could see ourselves the way God sees us, in love and in grace, trying to woo us back, it would shock us. And you know what? This is what the, the power of the word of God, the word of God is coming to us as I read it and study it, and as you listen to it today, and, and, you're th- and, and the Holy Spirit says, hey, Gene, Maybe you're not so far from being a donkey in heat in this one area. Why don't we get control? Why don't you repent of that? Why don't you come back so that you can wear the full label of love? Now, in verses 29 through 31, you don't want to be lamenting God's love. I mentioned in our last study that God is a pleader. He pleads with his wayward people, then and now, urging them to repent. It's not to be taken as a sign of weakness. He is disciplining while he pleads. When the time comes, God disciplines his children severely if they refuse to repent, but it's still out of love. After 40 years of pleading through Jeremiah and other prophets, God will allow the Babylonian armies to overrun Jerusalem, to destroy and loot the temple, and to hold his people captive in Babylon for 70 years. Now the feel of these last three verses of this section is that God is pleading and in light of it, you don't want to ignore him and be lamenting that you've missed out on experiencing his love. It's like any parent-child situation where you're getting ready to do something fun or happy and then your kid just blows it and they they get into that rebellious sin nature and in your heart you're like, I know I have to deal with this. But if you only, if, if you could just not rebel, we could be having so much fun right now. We would have already left. I wouldn't have had to leave you behind. You know, those kinds of things. Your heart as a parent is always, let's go, let's have a good time, let's relate to each other. And then your kid does something crazy, something insane. And just, and I love the smaller kids. It's fun watching my grandchildren now, you know, because their sin nature is so obvious, they don't even try to mask it. They're not smart enough like we are to try and say no, I didn't yell at you. You know, I'm not mad at you. You know, I mean we lied, which is even worse. But kids they're so, they're just so honest about being sinners. They look at you. They know they're not supposed to do something. They know it. And they look at you, they get your attention. Watch me. Watch me right now. Throw this. What do you think about that? I think I'm gonna have to deal with that now. We were just about to go get ice cream, but instead we're gonna get a spanking. Yeah, I mean, that's the deal. So God is saying, hey, just cut it out. I've got lots of stuff for you. We're gonna have a great experience. You don't want to be lamenting my love because you went after these crazy things. Verse 29 starts off by saying, why will you plead with me? You all have transgressed against me, says the Lord. Sounds like is pleading with God, not the other way around, but this pleading that God is talking about in verse 29 is something that's gonna happen in the future when the judgment is really falling, they're gonna be pleading with God. And it, it, not to say that it's too late because God still loves them and has a remnant and is loving them through discipline, but it's too late to keep Babylon from destroying them that bridge has been crossed. We'll get to verse 31 where we we will see God pleading with them right now. But first verse 30, in vain I have chastened your children. They receive no correction. Your sword has devoured your prophets like a destroying lion. The idea here isn't that God took it out on their children, but rather he was disciplining them as a father does his children. God's love was active in disciplining them, but they would not respond to it. They continued to rebel. In a final label, God calls them devouring lions or destroying lions because they killed his prophets. The sense of this is God sees his people as the sheep of his pasture. He is the great shepherd. He sends prophets to them as under shepherds, but the shepherds find that God's people are no longer sheep. They are devouring mountain lions who tear up his shepherds, and, and so I mean, this is an insult. Do you understand? I mean, we finally get to and say, "Oh, finally, a name that we can live with—the Lions." Although, who really is a Detroit Lions fan? Is anybody here going to admit that? No. But anyway, and but guys, no. If you understand their culture, God says, "You're my sheep. You're supposed to be sheep. I send you shepherds, and you turn out to be lions." And so it's a, it's a not a good thing. Verse thirty one. Oh generation, see the word of the Lord. Have I been a wilderness to Israel or a land of darkness? Why do you uh, why do my people say we are lords? We will come to you no more. After all this graphic in your face talk, this is pretty tender. God invites them to see the word of the Lord, not just to hear it but to see it. They could see God's dealings with them for some centuries. They had a timeline, they had a history. The times of blessing when they obeyed and the times of buffeting when they rebelled. Why would they think they were any different from their parents and their ancestors? They could also see what had happened to the northern kingdom of Israel, having been carried off with cruelty by the Assyrians. God was involved with them. He was in their history. He was predicting their future. He was actually in their midst, still dwelling in the temple at this time, the Shekinah glory of God. We hear God's word, we also need to take time to see it. Look, for example, at the lives of people you know who have fallen into sin. Their lust brought them to ruin. You should see that, not in a gloating way. It should actually cause us to be brokenhearted and we should want to restore those uh, as, you know, uh, in a spirit of love and gentleness. But the idea is, you know, if if someone that was walking with the Lord moved into this and their life was ruined, their marriage was ruined, their family was lost, how do I think that's not gonna happen to me if I go in that same direction? I need to see the word of the Lord. On the other hand, contrarily, there are those whose love for the Lord has brought them spiritual rest. I can see that as well. And though there are sacrifices to be made, the benefits outweigh the sacrifices. God asked Judah, Have I been a wilderness to Israel or a land of darkness? No, of course not. The Israelites had been plentifully supplied by God when in the wilderness, and since then they had been brought into a land flowing with milk and honey, so that they stood in need of nothing. They had a constant supply of all good things. Why do my people say, We are lords, we will come no more to you? An alternate translation is, We are broken loose. We are lords, we are broken loose. And that brings us right back to the very first description of this section, that of an ox who had broken the yoke and gotten loose. And in a sense, all the other digressions were the result of that first step. There's that thought, there's that inclination that you're no longer wanting to be in the yoke that God has designed for you. You just step out of it, You're not gonna really sin, although you're already sinning. You're not gonna get too far out. Uh, You just don't like the yoke that you're in. And you know what? You can't help but think of Jesus saying to us, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle, humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls. Jesus says my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know what I think sometimes happens? We believe a lie that the yoke of Jesus is heavy, And harsh. We begin to think that the yoke of Jesus is something heavy and harsh. The world system, the devil, they present something that is outside the boundaries God has set for us. Instead of understanding that our loving Heavenly Father has set those boundaries for our good and His glory, we start to chafe against His yoke, give in to our flesh until we break away from His yoke and indulge our flesh. His yoke is easy and his burden is light, but it is a yoke and the way of Jesus is one of submission and humility and service. We sometimes sing, remember the old song, make me like you, Lord, make me like you. You are a servant, make me one too. Lord, I am willing, to do what you must do to make me a servant, Lord, make me like you. And If you're a Christian, if you've been born again, that is a sincere desire that we have. It grows in us, it's planted in us by the Holy Spirit. But it's pretty profound because in the middle of it, we're singing, do what you must do. And you know, the only way to be made a servant is to be in situations where you're forced to serve, where you have to express forgiveness and mercy and grace and humility and servitude and those kinds of things. And what happens is, I use marriage a lot as an example because that's kind of where everybody lives and if you talk to anybody, a, you know, independent counselor or a pastor, they'll tell you 90% of their counseling or uh, problems that people have are in marriages. And what happens a lot of times, I think, in a marriage, one or both partners gets to a point where they think this marriage is a heavy yoke. It's a harsh yoke. I don't like what's happening in this marriage. I'm chafing against it. I'm not getting what I thought I was going to get out of this marriage. And like the sixth century Jews, they think, I just want to break this yoke. I want to break free from this yoke. I'm not going to go very far. I'm not going to become a wild donkey in heat or do anything like that. I just, I just can't stand this yoke anymore. And I want to get into a better yoke, an easier yoke, a yoke where I, I love the other person and they really love me and you know, every you know, a fairy tale yoke, like the stories, you know, that I see uh, in Pixar movies and Disney movies, you know, that's that's the kind of yoke that I want. And Jesus comes along, and he says, Hey, excuse me, you're not yoked together with your wife or your husband. You're yoked together with me in that marriage. And I'm telling you that my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And this is the place where I am making you a servant. You know, Jesus left heaven. He left heaven. He took on the body of a man. And as the God-man, he humbled himself and he gave himself to suffering and to the ministry of the cross that he might be raised up and bring us to heaven with him. And so when Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, he has some you know, weight behind that because whatever he's gone through is way worse than anything that we're going to go through. He would say of his own yoke, that he was saying it at the time when he was on his way to the cross, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Not just the one he wanted you to wear with him, but the one he was bearing as well. And so... That's where, we, that's where we have the problem. That's where the seed thought comes. It's like, I don't like my marriage. I can't stand my job. I, my church is driving me crazy. Uh, this is happening, that's happening. Now, some of those other things I wanna be careful because a lot of times I say, I use the job thing and people say, well, can I ever change my job? Well, sure you can. I think sometimes people change their job too soon when God is trying to use them there or ser- make them servants and all of that. And that's why marriage becomes a more profound example because that's one where you think, okay, you know, God, you know that that's supposed to last. But whatever it is, the whole idea is that a lot of times we have to step back and say, Lord, I think this is a yoke that is heavy and harsh, but you promised me it would be light and easy, so maybe I'm just not going your way. You see, the idea of a yoke is that the oxen, they have to both move together in unison or else it starts to hurt, it starts to chafe it starts to just do all those things until they get back on track and i can tell you right now if you're yoked with jesus he's on track he's he's got it dialed in and so whenever my yoke begins to be a burden when it becomes harsh i'm the one that's moving in a new direction that is not the direction that the lord has for me and it's usually something really simple like i don't want to show grace i refuse to be forgiving i'm not merciful I don't want to submit those kinds of things. I won't bring forth the fruit of the Spirit. I'm in my flesh. And all I need to do is what? Repent. Will my situation change? Maybe not. People don't like to hear that. Maybe your situation won't change. But your heart will change. And you will be yoked together with Jesus Christ. In the end... You want to be the yoked oxen. Let's pray.